Thank you, Isaac, the worship team leading us this morning. Uh, I don't, I don't like not knowing things. There's an arrogance to that. I like learning things, though. So if you know everything, you wouldn't learn anything. So sort of this tension, a little bit of a battle there. Uh, and some things it's okay to not know, and I have to learn that the hard way. Like some mechanical things on a vehicle, like some things I can do, and some things I think I can do, and then I find out really couldn't do. And so then I have to take it to the mechanic, and he's, he's a good friend, and he's a nice, nice guy. Um, but there's some things that, that aren't okay to not know, if I can put it that way, things that we should know, and not just as a pastor, but just as a believer. Um, I believe all scripture, all scripture, all of the writings we find in the Old and New Testament are um, inspired, breathed out by God, and profitable for instruction and reproof and correction uh, instruction and righteousness, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction and in, in righteousness, that the man and the woman of God might be perfect, complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Good works, which God the Father ordained beforehand that we would walk in them to kind of mix some passages together, right? So we need all of the scripture. Uh, so it's not okay for me to know what First Timothy is about, what Romans is about, what Mark is about, uh, and then to have whole portions of the scripture and if you were like, what is this book about? You'd be like, ah, oh, you know, I have no idea. Uh, books like the prophet Haggai, uh, second smallest book in the Old Testament, uh, which that's kind of a rough designation, isn't it? You don't even get to be the smallest, like you're second smallest. You didn't get first place, didn't get second place. You don't, you're not on the podium, right? But you weren't even the worst, like you're the just, it's just like not even, it seems like not even worth mentioning in competition. And second to last place was uh, Haggai. And so I, I get questions a lot as we get toward the middle or end of another series. What's next? What's next? What are we going to study? And a lot of times the default would be like, what's the next New Testament book that we're going to study? Uh, but I want to feel the, the weight of responsibility to preach the study and then preach to you the whole counsel of God. And when we say that, it's not just... Um, jumping around to topics that I want to discuss, but it's also not just staying in books that are, are familiar or seem at face value to be, quote, easier to preach. First uh, Timothy, not difficult to preach, right? Um, we've, we have a little bit more connection with a new covenant body of believers who knew about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Then we jump to the Old Testament, and there's stuff that we know. We enjoy the Psalms, the songs, and uh, poems of God's people uh, that we enjoy singing together and that we study. Then uh, the, the the prophets, though, and we know, I don't know how much you know, the, know about the different prophets, um, might jump to Jonah, that's fun, or Daniel, preached through Daniel a few years ago, and there's some rough spots in that, trying to figure out all that's going on, but uh, some really great stories, I'll mention a couple of them today. Uh, everybody loves Isaiah, there's a lot of amazing things throughout Isaiah. Um, Jeremiah, weeping prophet, rough time in God's history, a uh, longer book. Uh, one of the major prophets, there are major prophets and minor prophets. I don't know if you knew that. That's a designation, not of those that are important and those that are not important. Uh, basically, that just means the, the guys who wrote a lot and the guys who wrote a little. And so we have the, the 12 minor prophets and wanted to go into Haggai. I knew like one verse from it um, prior to this study. Maybe you're all experts in Haggai, uh, but you're not if you say Haggai. 
because that's wrong. It's Haggai. Look, there's no I after the G. I checked in Hebrew, and this is right, Haggai, okay? Uh, If you've said it wrong, that's okay, because for a long time, I said Habakkuk instead of Habakkuk, and nobody corrected me uh, until somebody did, and then I felt like an idiot. Uh, I remember saying that publicly in an Awana, uh, you have to say all the books of the Bible, and still nobody corrected me. Like, well, he has it in the right order, even though he doesn't know how to talk. So it's not Habakkuk, and it's not Haggai, right? It's Habakkuk, which we're not studying, and it's Haggai, which we are studying. Uh, Today is setting the stage for these type of things. Since it's an unfamiliar book, or I imagine it's an unfamiliar book, it's an unfamiliar book to me for the most part, uh, we need to set the stage. Uh, Really, I want to understand the setting, I want to understand the characters, and then we'll talk through the meaning, uh, or the message, excuse me, of the book. So those are our three points. It's going to take me a little while. Already it has taken me a little while. It's going to take me even longer before we actually get to those three points. And then next week, we'll dive in on chapter 1, verse 1. Hopefully, I'll be using some names that are familiar to you if you uh, know Scripture, even if you're not an avid student of Scripture. I'm hoping to to bring out names to set it in order so you kind of see what's happening. Uh, so that you can, like, I know these stories, I want to see them connected, because I think that's important. It's important, especially here, for us to know, like, when we talk about, oh, Haggai is one of the three post-exilic prophets, and if that's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, like, that's okay, uh, but, but it is important. Like, who are they talking to, and what is happening? We need to understand that if we're going to understand the message that God gave to Haggai to give to his people, which is recorded in scripture for our doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, okay? So we talk about Abraham, start all the way back in Genesis. Abraham chosen uh, out of a pagan family and a pagan nation to be God's chosen people and blessings, a covenant given to him, a covenant that's passed on then to Isaac and to Jacob. Jacob's name uh, was changed to Israel. So when we talk about the people of Israel, it's the descendants of Israel or the descendants of Jacob specifically. Uh, Jacob had a number of sons. I could sing that to you in a song, including his daughters uh, and their wives, because I had a really cool sixth grade teacher. Uh, But one of his most famous sons, uh, we have a lot of stories about at the end of Genesis, is named, are you with me? Joseph. Uh, What did Joseph had? A robe, a multicolored, fancy, expensive robe, uh, and it's a bad idea to show that type of blatant favoritism to your children, Uh, but Israel was a lot of things. A good dad? Not really one of them. Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, um, but God meant that for good, we find out in Genesis chapter 50, to save, as Joseph put it, to save many lives. And so God's people, in pro- keeping in promise, actually, that he had made to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the, his descendants, 70 in number, moved from the promised land where they were not allowed to reside, and they had just been strangers living in tents, what's now, you know, the land of Israel, right? Uh, they were moved into Egypt, and they stayed in Egypt for 400 years, and they went over that course of that 400 years from welcome guests to slaves. They cried out to the Lord repeatedly, 400 years, right? 2021, okay? 1621, right? The pilgrims have, are coming, right? 1620, pilgrims, right? CC, come on. 1620, the pilgrims. So 400 years ago, right, like the first of the north, what would be the United States citizenship and population 
moves to this country. Okay? So the entirety of our history, essentially, the entirety of their is, is the length of the history of the amount of time they spent in Egypt. And for most of that, they were slaves. And so from that, we meet a new character. And as we move from the book of Genesis into the book of Exodus, a monumental character in the history of God's people, his name was Moses, right? Moses used to deliver God's people through the Exodus. God brought the plagues, uh, led them out in triumph. Uh, we've been reading toward the end of that in Exodus. So God leads his people out, it parts the Red Sea, destroys the Egyptian army, and then begins to lead them back up toward the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, if you're following along, okay? So they've, they've done a big, they're going to do a big loop to bring about the promise. They act in disobedience, though, right? A whole generation who had seen the miracles of God, had seen his hand at work, failed to trust him when it mattered, I guess we could say, really failed to trust him at all. So that whole generation is condemned to die in the wilderness. So they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. All that generation dies off. And so we arrive at the end of Deuteronomy. Moses is still alive, even though because of his sin, he's also not allowed to go into the promised land. So there's gonna be somebody else who will lead them. We'll talk about him in a minute. But prior to this, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, giving to the second generation, right? The children of those who had been led out because their parents had all, had, had all died in the wilderness, in God's judgment. So Moses is speaking to them. The whole of Deuteronomy is just preparing them to kind of be without him, to remind them of the law, to remind them of the covenant that God had made with them. And covenants have obligations, and covenants have blessings, and covenants have curses. And so in Deuteronomy, uh, a number of places, but we're going to go to Deuteronomy. You can follow with me if you want. I'm going to scan through this. But in Deuteronomy 28, Moses speaks on behalf of God to the Israelites to say, right, God is the one who has brought you into relationship with him, right? Or as he said earlier in Exodus to the other generation, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt you shall have no other gods before me, right? The start of the Ten Commandments. I have acted in grace. I've made you mine. You have obligations as my people. And there are blessings that would flow to them for living in obedience to this in the land. Blessings if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you. And he's got this great thing. It's like wherever you go, up or down, left or right, home or away, sitting, standing, lying down, everywhere, you're gonna be blessed, right? I'm gonna bless your, you in your battles against your enemies. You're going to have victory. I'm going to bless your, the, the fruit of your womb. You're going to have lots and lots of babies. Always a blessing in scripture, by the way. Uh, you're going to have lots and lots of babies, right? And you're not going to get sick and things aren't going to wear out. Uh, you're going to have your crops. Not only are you going to have lots of babies, your livestock's going to have lots of babies. Really, just like everything, you're just going to live in, as my people, the place that I've set aside for you, and it's going to, I'm going to fill it with blessings. It's like, yes, right? Who doesn't, who doesn't want that? That's, that's, that's close to Eden, honestly. And then in verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God 
or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And everywhere that you were going to be blessed, up, down, left, right, home, or away, sitting or standing, everywhere that you would have been blessed, you're going to be cursed. Instead of me being for you, for your good, I'm going to be against you. And he goes through a number of different things with that. There's, there's, they, there will be uh, miscarriages and barrenness. There will be uh, drought and blight and mildew, right? Crops, livestock, battles, everything. It'll, it will be hell on earth. He goes on. It's a lengthy chapter walking through these things, warning them. Uh, talks about nations coming against them. And he says in verse 58, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, this is what are the things that are going to happen. Actually, it's like the plagues that I set on your enemies I'm going to send on you. And then verse 64, they haven't even entered the promised land yet, right? Are you, you with me? Okay, they haven't even set foot across the Jordan. Jericho has not happened yet. If you fail to keep my commandments, if you will not be my people, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a languishing soul. Blessings and cursings. And the people are like, oh no, we're gonna, we're gonna follow. Moses, choose life or death. Choose blessing or cursing. Like, well, who's gonna be, you know, yeah, the curse. That sounds good. Nobody's gonna do that. Now, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do that. So they go into the land. You've got Joshua. Moses dies. Everybody else, right? We, we, we turn the page from Deuteronomy into Joshua. Joshua is the one that has been set aside. Moses is assistant who's going to lead God's people into the promised land, the next generation. So then we, uh, we have the Joshua and the battle of Jericho, right? First of many battles. They win the first, they lose the second, and then they win ongoing. And they clean out the land of its previous inhabitants, God's judgment on them. After Joshua, you have the book of Judges, where Joshua falls off the scene, but God continues to have leaders. You have cycles of sin, judgment, chastisement, curses starting to come on them, and then repentance, repentance followed by blessing, blessing followed by ignoring God's commands, right? You just have these cycles that continue through that book. And toward the end of that, you have the prophet Samuel coming in. Then you have the first king of God's people, what was his name? King Saul, right? Tall and handsome and worthless. Uh, king Saul is leading God's people, but he doesn't have a heart for God. And so he's replaced by what probably was going to be God's first king uh, and the truest first king of Israel. His name was David, right? David and Goliath, that happened during Saul's reign. David and a whole bunch of other stuff, good and bad, happens. David has a son. David's son's name is Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived until Jesus, wrote the Proverbs that we have, wrote Ecclesiastes, looking at everything that was going to take place uh, ruled well, ruled lavishly, ruled peacefully, and then fulfilled what his father David had wanted, that Solomon, in addition to improving all different aspects of the land, constructed a magnificent temple for the Lord on the mount in the center 
of the mountain that was Zion, that was Jerusalem, the capital city of the whole nation, and the pinnacle of that was the temple dedicated to the Lord. Nothing nothing could compare to that, just the glory of that, seeking to convey the glory of the Lord, but um, Solomon knew it wasn't heaven, you know, Heaven can't contain God. The earth can't contain God. This temple can't contain God. Yet God was pleased with that temple. His presence descended on it at its dedication. An amazing, one of my favorite chapters to read is the glory, the fire, the cloud descends on those type of things. You have this glorious temple. You only had one temple for the Israelite nation. Only one. Only one place where God authorized worship and sacrifice to be offered to him amazing place that stood filled with treasures that had been uh, with money set aside by David, set aside by Solomon, a glorious place. Solomon was wise. His son, Rehoboam, was foolish. And under King Rehoboam, this kingdom that had lasted for only three kings divides. Twelve tribes that had been unified in God's purposes are now ten in the north and two in the south, and you have two, you have two strands. Uh, spent a lot of time talking about that. I'm not, I'm not going to, but the kingdom is divided. And then after decades and decades of, uh, sometimes it's rocky, there's, there's kings that, that led in revival uh, back to the worship of God, and you had kings that basically just shuttered the, the temple, uh, constructed other temples to worship false gods, to worship idols, some of them setting up idols in the temple itself, and then others taking those out and killing those priests restoring that glorious temple to the worship of the one true glorious God. But after decades and centuries of of disobedience and, and idolatry, God finally brings the covenant curses on his people in full. There was an empire that had arisen a few centuries, as I said, after the time of, of David, Solomon, and whatnot. The empire of Babylon arrives and takes prisoners and takes treasures. They actually came three different times. The first of those times is when we find Daniel taken as a young man captive into Babylon. The third time, it's like Babylon tried to be nice, right? They were stronger. They were going to win. Actually, they were sent by God to do this. They they tried to allow the, the kingdom to stand on its own and be subservient, and they stubbornly and foolishly rebelled against him. Even though the prophets had clearly said, this is from the hand of God. Jeremiah is just like, pack your bags and go to Babylon. It's the only chance you're going to have to live. That was the word of the Lord given to the prophets to give to the people. Give up, surrender, and go live in Babylon until God says that you can come back. It's the only hope. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to abandon a temple. We're not going to abandon Jerusalem. We're God's people. The third time that King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire comes, he destroys the city, levels the temple. It's left in rubble, and other than a few peasants that are, that are left there in the disaster, uh, it's all over. Now, we could read about this in Second Chronicles chapter 36 to see this from, uh, from the divine author. Verse 15 of Second Chronicles 36 says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, so prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. What was the dwelling place? It was a temple. 
where he had taken up residence among his people. He had compassion on his people, compassion on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, just another uh, way of talking about Babylon. The king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into the hands of this foreign king. All the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons. The promises of cursing to a disobedient, unfaithful people that God gave to Moses, Deuteronomy, fulfilled in full, we can read about in books like Second Chronicles. We enter, we follow God's people into Babylon, and as I already mentioned, that's where we see Daniel. Uh, we also see these three other men. Who are they? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nobody wanted to say Shadrach first. It's okay. Or maybe some of you wanted to say their Hebrew names, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's fine too. Same people. So we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to an idol and thrown into the fiery furnace, yet God's with his people and saves them. They said, love that, even if, you, even if he doesn't. Our God's able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to be unfaithful to him. Wow. Right? Living in his blessing, his people weren't willing to say that. But living in exile, some of them were. God's not done with his people. And we read about Daniel. We read the amazing story about the handwriting on the wall. You guys remember that story? Uh, I, I acted that out of sorts to the girls this week. Uh, I'm not going to do that for you. Uh, it's just, uh, we're, not everywhere is my dinner table. Uh, but, but the drunken, foolish king, not Nebuchadnezzar, this is uh, really kind of a few generations after that, uh, mocking God, and uh, he was a loser of a king just in general. Anyways, people didn't like him. And in the middle of that night, you know, middle of this drunken party, God, God writes on the wall. He doesn't even speak through a prophet this time. He just writes it on the wall himself. You've been, you know, I, I put you on the scale. You don't measure up. I'm, I'm done with you in Babylon. Uh, and that very night, very night, another empire entered the cities of great Babylon. They diverted the river and they just walked in. And anybody who saw them, they didn't even bother to stop them because nobody liked that guy. He was killed, and the Babylonian Empire fell overnight, basically without a fight, to the Persians, the Persian Empire. In the Persian Empire, Daniel travels with that, and it's in the Persian Empire that we read about Daniel and the lion's den. So Daniel went from Jerusalem to Babylon, Babylon to Persia, used by God and is faithful in all of those different places. God delivers him from hungry lions, but not his enemies, because God is still with his people. So we read about Daniel and the lion's den happening in that Persian empire. 
we find, I stopped in the middle of a verse in 2 Chronicles 36, because this is actually written toward the end of all of that, to be a lesson to God's people of their history. Kind of that whole, uh, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, right? So the history of God's people given to God's people, that's kind of what First and Second Chronicles is doing. So um, starting at the beginning of verse 20 again, the king of the Babylonians, Chaldeans, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. I'm going to keep reading. Kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Uh, It was supposed to take one week out of seven for us, one year out of seven, and then uh, seven of sevens, year of Jubilee, every 50th year. There was supposed to be rest, rest for the people, rest for the land, rest for the animals, rest for everybody, and God promised that he would provide. That would be a difficult economic decision uh, uh, to, to make, right? Don't sow any crops, Trust God to feed you for three years. Uh, And the people didn't. They didn't keep that Sabbath, but it was God's law. So he gave them rest. He gave the land rest by removing the people from it. For until what they had failed to do, apparently 70 of these years, until that was fulfilled. Verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 36. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, he was in charge when uh, they entered in and conquered Babylon. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, wow, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. The the Assyrian Empire that came before the Babylonians and the Babylonian Empire, uh, they said people are easy to conquer if they're not in a familiar place. Right? You can't worship your own gods. No, no identity of you. You're, Babel- you're Assyrians now. You're Babylonians now. Conquered, slaves. You don't get to worship your gods. You worship our gods. Your gods were pathetic anyway, as they lost to us. So that was the, the kind of standing policy for two world empires. Uh, makes for angry people, but really it, you know, it works. Makes for a submissive people. Get out of your land. Don't worship your god. And then the Persians come in and Cyrus is being magnanimous. And not just to the Israelites, but to all of these conquered people. They're like, we want them, you know, yeah, they might not rebel, but they also hate us, which eventually is going to work against us. So we want them to be on our side. Still have to pay taxes. You're still subjects to the Persian Empire. But everybody got to go back to their land. Everybody got to go, got to go back to worship their gods. And what's amazing about that is that Cyrus paid for those temples himself. It wasn't just like, go and do your best. Actually, I'll pay for it right? You, that's just, that's, that's a wild policy, very expensive, but yet it would breed goodwill on the part of the people. That's what Cyrus, I imagine, is thinking. And that's like 2,500 years ago, so I'm not like, this is what Cyrus was thinking, but that's what I imagine by way of national uh, imperial policy, that that's what he was thinking. 
But all of that is in fulfillment of the promise that God had made through his prophets that one would come named Cyrus who would allow people to go back. You can find that prophecy and read about that way, way before. So God's people, after being in exile, are allowed to go back. Not only allowed to go back, basically paid to go back. Not only paid to go back, but, but paid and, and it's the law that they get to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and be God's people in God's place and make a dwelling for his presence again. That's incredible. That gets us to the book of Ezra right after 2 Chronicles. It, it picks up right where it left off, and we read numbers of people. That's highly significant of who these people were. It comes in, in a couple other books. It uh, gives us a number, 42,360 Jews returned to Jerusalem. That's in uh, Ezra 2, verse 64. And there were, there were male and female servants and others that came along with them. They come back into Jerusalem, right, an overgrown Ruin, rubble everywhere. They go in, they, they rebuild the altar. All of those years, they were never in a place where they could offer sacrifices to God because he had ordained one place, one altar according to a specific model. And every time they tried to worship God in a different place or in a different way, it built up his anger against them. It's like they finally learned, okay, this is the place. Let's not mess this up. So they rebuild the altar. Yes. And then they start to rebuild the temple. Yes, right? It's like, this is good. They are, they are heading in the right direction. God is with his people. This is, this is going to be wonderful. Uh, I love starting projects. Uh, I don't know if you do any type of project, but I love starting projects. Um, but that's, that's not all you're supposed to do with a project. Have you ever had a project stall? Out. I have, a, I, have a pro, I have several projects, actually, uh, that are in stall currently. I <laughs> uh, hope to get restarted. Just other projects keep getting piled on top of them. Uh, hope to clear out projects. Brett's shaking his head. Is that about you or is that about me? That's just about somebody else. I won't name them. I remember a few, uh, I used to, I grew up in Scott Depot. We would drive to Cross Lanes, went to school there, went to church there. Uh, there was a fire. I think it was a Dairy Queen uh, right off the exit that had a caught fire and partially burned down, but the sign remained up. <clears throat> and the sign was a promise that they were going to rebuild. We're going to be back in July of 96, 1996. Uh, but the J fell off at some point as that project never got off the ground. Be back, Uli, 96. And that Dairy Queen promised that it would be back in Uli of 96 for five, six, seven years. Uh, it never came back. Like that's where I think maybe Barnyard Barbecue is now, which I don't think is there anymore either. Um, so they, yeah, that project stalled. You know, they had good intentions. It just never got off the ground. Uli, 96. Funny how that stuck in. God's people back in Jerusalem paid by the king of Persia to rebuild the temple, but the project stalled. And the project stalled the temple remained unfinished because the people uh, also wanted to have dwelling places in the land. And they began to, to settle. And other projects got piled on top of that project and really pushed that project to the background. You can understand how that happens, right? I and mean, how common is it to have one really good intention, you get started, and then 
life just piles other things on top of you. And it's a matter of priorities, really, what you're going to do. And for more than 10 years, I think it was like 12 years, the temple, that altar is there, and the temple was started and unfinished. And God's people are building themselves houses, and they're farming, and economics maybe kind of took over. Like, how are we going to eat? How are we going to stay warm? How are we going to have commerce? We need to establish ourselves uh, as a, I mean, not as an independent nation, but we need to establish ourselves here. But we'll get to it. We're going to get to the temple as soon as everything else is settled. That gets us to the book of Haggai. The people are back from exile. I said post-exilic, kind of a Maybe a fancy way of saying that they're back from their time of exile in Babylon and then in Persia. Um, after this, by the way, in Persia where, is where Esther takes place. Just to kind of keep that in context as well. And so we read at the beginning of Haggai, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Three characters, four characters, really, that we might not be familiar with. Darius, Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. Uh, done, done some setting-type work. I want to talk about Darius, the king, again, king of Persia, third after Cyrus. There was Cyrus, there was Cyrus's son, and then there was Darius, okay? So Darius, the king, uh, not in Jerusalem, right? Back in the kingdom of, of Persia, at his own temple. And then you go from 586 BC before Christ is the time when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had destroyed the temple. And then you count the other direction. They didn't do that, by the way, right? Like they didn't say, oh, it's 586 BC. 586 before Jesus will be born. <laughs> That's us. That's our own counting dating system. They dated by their own kings, and we've been able to go back. So the second year of Darius the king is actually 520 BC, but it counts the other way, right, with Christ in the center. So we can talk about dating systems another time. But Darius, uh, Haggai, excuse me, is writing in 520, so 66-some years after the destruction uh, of the temple in in Babylon, and like I said, 10 or 12 years, I think it's 12 years after they had first been able, were sent back by Cyrus. Obviously, a lot's taken place in the Persian Empire as three kings have come about, and, and he's not even of the same dynasty as Cyrus. You look in other books, you look in other prophecies, it will date things based off of the king who ruled in Judah or the king who ruled in Israel. If I'm telling a story about something that happened in the United States, do you expect me to say the 14th year after the ascendancy of president, whatever his name is, in China? Or in the sixth year of Justin Trudeau's prime ministership in Canada, this happened in West Virginia. Like, that's an odd way of referencing that. But as well, it's a reminder God's people are under an empire. And we meet Haggai, the prophet, and that's about all we know about him. (laughs) 
We don't even know who his dad is. Sometimes it's like this guy, the son of this guy. Even if you don't know who that guy is, at least you know one family member. We don't know anything about Haggai. All sorts of amazing speculation that, that people who write commentaries come up with. Well, he wrote about farming, so maybe he was a farmer. He wrote about, wrote about the temple, maybe he was a priest. Uh, he wrote this, maybe he was old. Well, he did this, maybe he was young. Uh, his, his name is kind of like feast, so maybe he was born on a feast day. But all God wants you to know about him is that his name's Haggai, not Haggai, and that he's a prophet. What is a prophet? P-R-O-P-H-E-T, obviously, not amount of money you make in a sale. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. The word of the Lord came by the hand, or other times by the mouth, of Haggai the prophet. A lot of times when we think about prophecies, we might think about uh, future telling, right? That's kind of a default that we might go to. Uh, We read about at Christmas time, we read about the prophecies about Jesus, these future things that would happen centuries after. Well, sometimes the word of the Lord came to the people to say, this is what is going to happen. Sometimes the word of the Lord came by the prophet to say, you know what, this is what did happen. They could speak God's truth about the past. Other times it could just be giving God's perspective or God's truth about the present. So a prophet is one, God gives his word to, and the prophet's job was to say exactly what God told him to say without adding to it, without removing anything from it, without messing it up. Kind of the pressure that I feel. It's like, okay, here's God's word get it to you without messing it up. Uh, If they changed it, if they messed it up, they were subject to execution. Um, They did not speak God's truth because they use that type of phrasing that you you find in different places that King James kind of has it really powerfully, right? Thus saith the Lord, right? This is what God says. And you shouldn't say this is what God says unless it is what God says whether you call yourself a prophet or anything else. Don't don't mess with the word of the Lord, right? So Haggai is a prophet speaking God's truth to God's people. And in a sense, he's speaking a little bit about the past, but I would think that he's kind of mostly addressing a present problem. Something is happening and you are missing the point. And so I'm gonna interpret for you from God's perspective, this is what has been happening This is why, and and this is the remedy for it. And it all centers at the beginning around this, uh, that stalling of the project regarding rebuilding the temple. We we meet another character, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Not king of Judah, governor of Judah. Uh, He was from the line of David, grandson to one of the last kings, um, Kaniah, Jeconiah maybe in some places, who we'll talk about him at another point, but um, a specific curse from God to him because of the way uh, that he led God's people in unfaithfulness. But Zerubbabel comes back. So we have Haggai the prophet. We have Zerubbabel of the line of David. David's line was supposed to be a kingly line. So in Zerubbabel, we see, in a sense, the role of king, even though he wasn't a king. And then we meet Joshua, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. We don't, uh, Zerubbabel is also found in Ezra. Not a whole lot is talked about with Zerubbabel. Uh, but Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So it means he had to have been descended from Moses' brother Aaron. The priestly line 
needed to maintain that. So he had maintained his genealogy and knew that he was qualified for this, uh, called by God to serve in this way the high priest over God's people. So in this first verse, we have three roles we actually see throughout the Old Testament and then pushing us forward in the New Testament, uh, where God to his people had prophets and he had priests and he had kings. Where was, there was one man who essentially served almost in all three of those. Moses was a prophet. Moses wasn't quite a king, but pretty close. And although Moses was not a priest, Aaron was a priest, yet Moses offered sacrifices that cleansed and qualified Aaron. So Moses serves in a priestly capacity. And God said, there's going to be somebody else I'm going to raise up that's going to fulfill these different things. So even in this, as we see what happens in God's people, we see each of those different roles that he had given to really mediate his role, the worshipful aspect of that and, and the national aspect of that, that they'd be governed well and that God would speak truth to them. And so we already start to hear whispers pointing us forward to another one that would come because all of those prophets and all of those priests and all of those kings point us forward to the prophet, priest, and king who is Jesus. So we start to see already in all of these, the continuity of that, we're seeing is pushing us forward, continuity of how God interacts with his people, pointing us forward to Jesus. The title that, that is used of the Lord is always important to see that as we learn aspects of who God is. Shall not, Abraham asks, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God is a righteous judge. We learn about that and how his people interacted with him. We hear about Rahab, you are the God who sees me in my need. Number of different titles that come up. What is the title that we see here in verse 2? Thus says who? The Lord of hosts. Uh, the Lord is, has those, those small caps, which means that's the covenant name that God had given to his people. I've never given my name, he said, until I give it to you. Uh, I am Yahweh. Uh, some would, would uh, change some of the letters in that, which is fine, to, to Jehovah. Right? You, might be more, you might be more familiar with that. Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord of hosts. Some would talk about this as the, the Yahweh of armies. The God of, of angel armies or heavenly armies, the God of, of power and might, the Lord of hosts who in previous prophets was against God's people. God is doing his, his will with his armies, advancing his kingdom. Love what he said to Joshua way, way back. Joshua sees this decked out soldier, like, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Are you, you on our side or are you on Jericho's side? Do you remember the answer to that? Whose side are you on, us or theirs? What was the answer? Neither. Neither. <laughs> the question is, are you on my side? Not am I on your side? So God's power as a, as a commander of armies to accomplish his will and some of the prophets that speak about the Lord of hosts might speak about the Lord of hosts going against the enemies of God's people. And other times that sword turns and it's the Lord of armies against his people because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness. And that sword had fallen on them heavy. And then here, the Lord of hosts 
is speaking to them again. And Haggai uses that title, uh, even in this second shortest of books, I think he uses this title, if I remember correctly, second most of the prophets. Poor guy. He just so close yet so far, but the Lord of hosts is the title that God is communicating to his people. You are under the thumb of Persia, even if they're being nice, but I am the God of armies, and I'm the one who's speaking to you. Persia is not more powerful than me, just as Babylon was not more powerful, just as Assyria wasn't more powerful, just as the Philistines weren't more powerful. I am the Lord of hosts. And then later on, we meet what's referred to as the remnant of the people. Just a fraction of them were left alive after the destruction of Babylon, and just a fraction of those left alive came back. So when it talks about the remnant, those that remain, that's who this is talking about. And then we come to a, a wonderful prophecy as Haggai mostly is saying, here's what's happening now, but he also talks about here's what will happen in the future. And he talks about all nations as well, which I wonder if they thought, how big they thought of that. How many, when they say all nations, was that a relatively small number of nations? Could they imagine what was going on worldwide? How many nations that we can think of now? Yet the promise remains for those things. What's the message of Haggai? In this short book, this short book takes place over a short period of time. And Haggai is divided into four sermons that basically happened over four months. The first one, so we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, at the end of August of 520. And then the last one comes in December of 520. So this short book is a short ministry. Four sermons and, and really in, the, in between one and two is one active response on the people. And then the word of the Lord comes to them. It's been described as a prophetic history because it's not just messages or oracles. It's kind of like, here's what was going on. Here's what the Lord said. And then here's what happened. So you sort of see the history of God's people starting to unfold. And you could, if you wanted to be more familiar with the setting, uh, Ezra, reading through aspects of that would be really, really helpful. I want to summarize aspects of this, the message of the book of Haggai for you. First off, in one of the phrases that happens in verse 6, which, or sorry, verse 5 of chapter 1, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, here's the phrase, consider your ways. What a great prophetic message, right? When you think about a prophet, kind of think of the, maybe the finger of Nathan pointing in the the face of wicked King David, you are the man. Think of Elijah marching in to to King Ahab. It's not going to rain until I say so. And then you have this prophet standing up, coming from, we have no idea where. Where did he come from? Uh, what, What happened before this? And he walks up to the governor. He walks up to the high priest. He says, this is the message that you need to say to the people. Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Think about how you're living. Or as it says behind me, think about your priorities. Are they God's priorities? This is a call to repentance. Actually, the second aspect of that. You throughout this aspect, even throughout this first message, we'll see next week, there's a, not just in his title, the Lord of hosts, but even in his actions that he reveals this is what has been happening behind the scenes that you need to think about. We see God's sovereignty at play. And in God's sovereignty, acting against the people that he had blessed in bringing them back, yet they continued in unfaithfulness. 
And so he acts against them again. And so we see those covenant curses, but we also see chastisement from a heavenly father who wanted his people to repent, right? This isn't just destruction. This is, this is chastisement. This is correction. This is warning that's happening, even as the curses come on them for their unfaithfulness. Consider your ways. What are you doing? You think of the book of Haggai, that phrase should echo in your mind. Consider your ways. Then we see a response of repentance, which is wonderful. This is verse 12. That'll be, uh, Lord willing, the second sermon to finish chapter 2. We see the people hear the message of the Lord, and they respond by fearing the Lord. And then they, with fearing the Lord, they get to work on what God had wanted them to do. They reorder their priorities, they push their own agendas aside, and they go back to doing what God had wanted them to do. They considered their ways, they responded in fear, they responded in obedience. That's repentance. They turned from what they were doing and pursued God's priority. And then the second phrase that we see in this is absolutely beautiful. Verse 13, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. What does the Yahweh of angel armies say to his people? I am with you. I am, I am with you, which we could also say is I am for you, right? I'm not with you to curse you. I'm with you to bless you. I'm here. We consider your ways a call to repentance, and we see repentance taking place. And then he comes back, and he talks then about the coming glory of the temple, really kind of a heartbreaking part of the book where he reminds them, you know, this isn't as good as it used to be, is it? Like, look at this temple. And some of them were young enough, or were old enough now, that they were young enough that they were actually deported, and then they came back. Deported as young men, young women, came back as old men and old women. So they had seen the temple. They had seen it burn or at least watched it smoke as they were dragged away from their homes. They had seen it in all its glory. And I was like, now look at its outline. Is this match what Solomon's temple was? You know, there's this, there's this really poignant part of Ezra where they finally do finish the temple and they dedicate it. And some of the people are celebrating and they're singing. And you know what some of the other people are doing? They're weeping. They're weeping because it's like, this is supposed to be displaying the glory of the Lord and it's so much less than it used to be. Not God's glory, but just the place that we have to offer. And it's said that the, the sound of this, the joy and singing and the sound of the weeping mingled, mingled together, you couldn't even tell. It's like, i happy or sad. Like, what is happening here? This is really strange. So Solomon's temple, really glorious. This temple, not that great. But the message that the Lord of hosts, the sovereign God of the universe and of his people has is there's going to be glory in this temple that is better than Solomon's. Solomon's glory, Solomon's temple's glory, this temple's glory, that temple's glory. And that's not high enough. So be strong. Work, for I am with you. My spirit, my presence will be with you as it was. Look forward to, to teasing that out in different parts of Scripture. And then this wonderful, this wonderful promise at the end. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The general 
says, I will bring and give peace to you. And then the last few verses, well, there's, sorry, there's, there's one other section, the uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, where, where Haggai is once again kind of pulling back God's perspective on the people and things that have been taking place, and he's confronting them about defilement and worship. It's like, why would you expect God to have been with you? Why would you have expected God's blessing in response to your disobedience and unfaithfulness? But then he says at the end of that section, after making sure they can see everything that took place, see God's perspective, then they say, but he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. So defilement and worship and impurity in God's people is not the end of the story. But that's that sermon. And then the last few verses, verse 20 to 23, God speaks to Zerubbabel. Again, he's the governor of Judah here. He's descended from David, so he should have been by, by um, heritage, by inheritance. He should have been the Davidic king. He, would have, he was in line for that, but there was no kingdom, but there will be. And so in this last message, that, that there's the promise of the glory of the, the kingdom, or the temple, excuse me. Then here, there's the, there's the promise that that David, a king of David, sitting on the throne, that's not done. That's not done. God made a, an eternal promise to David that there would be one who would sit on his throne, all would bow to him. Think Psalm 2, right? I have done this. My son, David's son, on the throne, forever ruling all nations. And then you look at Zerubbabel, sitting on this paltry chair as a governor in the middle of a ruined city with a barely completed temple. And God says, that promise is still in effect. The coming king of David, the coming Davidic king will be here. Haggai. We think about the importance of this book, the, the restoration of God's people to the land, the rebuilding of the temple, not just immediately important to them. It's important to us. There's a distant importance to it because without those things in place, without uh, God's people in, in the land, without the rebuilding of the temple, without those things in place, the promises and prophecies regarding Jesus could not be fulfilled. God's people don't come back and repopulate that area. Then nobody lives in Bethlehem. And if nobody lives in Bethlehem, can a baby be born in Bethlehem? Nope. If all God's people are dead or <laughs> exiled in Babylon, Promises can't be fulfilled. Where, where is that little root from the stump of Jesse if they aren't back, right? How could he come to, to display and to fulfill all righteousness, declare himself in the temple as God dwelling among his people if there's no temple, right? So this is incredibly important for these things to happen. And then as we consider God's promises to his people in Haggai, we are going to see that 2,500 years later, there are promises from Haggai that remain not yet fulfilled. And not yet fulfilled is better than unfulfilled because it's still going to be fulfilled. So we, 2021, as we read and study this book, we are joining generations of God's people that have looked forward with confidence and with expectation, which is the biblical definition of hope, confident expectation that the complete fulfillment of these promises will come about when Christ returns. Are we going to pursue God's priorities?
What are God's priorities? Well, we'll see in Haggai, his priorities are his glory. We've talked about that. Your glory or his? And that was shown by their houses versus God's house. So are you going to pursue the priority of God's glory? God has a priority of pure worship from a pure people. It's important to him. Is that important to us? God has a priority of his king ruling over his kingdom. And in case you think that those type of things is glory, is worship, obedience, and his kingdom, if you think that those were maybe just Old Testament priorities, let me remind you of the three petitions that we find at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. May your name be honored as holy. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. Are we going to pursue our priorities or are we going to pursue God's priorities? And Haggai called God's people to God's priorities and I I trust that the Holy Spirit will do the same for us. Let's pray. Lord of hosts, we praise you that you you are with us. You are for us and yet you call us to consider our ways pray your, your spirit would move in us as we consider uh, the, the words that you gave to the prophet Haggai to give to your people, including us. Uh, open our eyes with um, prophet-like clarity to see where we are going astray in our priorities and where we need to realign to uh, pursue the glory of your name, to pursue your kingdom, and its advancement to pursue your glory and to do your will. Um, I pray you would convict me in, in studying and proclaiming these things and convict your people and that we would honor you. And we would respond in repentance and obedience and hope uh, as your people did to the message of Haggai uh, so many years ago. Amen.